You're listening to the Everyday Herbals Podcast, Episode 8. Welcome back to today's show. Today we're talking with herbalist Jonathan Treasure about herbs for cancer. Jonathan has a master's degree in medical sciences from Cambridge University, and he also graduated in herbal medicine from the UK School of Phytotherapy. Jonathan has devoted his clinical practice to botanical medicine and nutritional therapies for people with cancer, and he's also the author of the upcoming three-volume book, Cannabis and Cancer. The thing I appreciated the most about speaking with Jonathan is that he's an expert not only in traditional Western herbalism, but he's also extremely knowledgeable about biomedical science, and he shared so much valuable information with me today that I've decided to break this interview into a two-part series, half released today and the other half is released next Monday. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hi, Jonathan. Thank you for joining me today. Um, can you tell us how you got started in herbalism? Sure. Hi. Um, I can do that. I'm, I'm a little, uh, I'm probably a, a bit of an odd bird or atypical. Um, I think quite a few people have sort of started out in with an interest in herbs and kind of then pushed towards uh, getting some medical understanding uh, whether it was just clinical herbalism training or sometimes, you know, taking ND courses and uh, more rarely even going for med school. Um, I, I, tended, I, I went the opposite direction. Um, I started out in medical sciences and doing kind of neurobiology uh, research and pretty much dropped out of um, uh, that world, um, mostly to follow Tibetan Buddhism. Um, and at that time in the, in the early seventies, I got exposed to some, uh, quite a lot actually of Tibetan medical teachings. And, um, over the years, um, I became pretty dissatisfied with the various, um, things that I was doing and uh, tried to then put together something that made sense with my sort of Buddhist background and my science background. And I retrained in the UK as um, at the what was then called the School of Phytotherapy, um, which unfortunately no longer exists, but it was a four or five year training course. So it's like a postgrad training course in herbal medicine. And that was pretty much my my trajectory. Um, I've been in the States now for 20 years, and it's uh, a pretty different situation here um, with regards to herbal medicine, um, as you and your listeners are likely to know. But um, long story short, that that's my path. Okay. And I know that your specialty is in cancer. So how did that come about? Huh. Well, yes, that's a that's a great question. Um, partly, uh, the the fact that herbal medicine is is um, I don't know really how best to describe it in the states. Um, I mean, one of the things we can say clearly is that Western herbal medicine is not a clearly defined uh, profession with licensed practitioners and all the rest of it. Um, herbal medicine is, is, um, a very eclectic 
church here in the States. Uh, when I first moved from London, where I had my practice, which was a kind of busy urban metropolitan sort of general practice, I uh, moved to um, the West Coast and uh, I moved to Eugene, Oregon, which is a culture shock uh, of, of great proportions, um, moving there from, from London. And um, one of the things I discovered when I hung out a shingle as a herbalist was that really probably at least half the local population thought they were herbalists already. And um, anyone that came to see me usually wanted to come and, as they would say, check my herbs, man, and um, wanted to do barter or trade instead of uh, pay me any money. And <laughs> I began to realize that uh, just being a general, a generalist here um, was going to be a tough way of earning any money. Um, so that was the first thing, and that's really a product of the American uh, culture of herbal medicine. Um, there are very, very few herbalists who earn a, a full-time income here, I believe, from purely from clinical practice. So then I set out to uh, work with a, um, a guy I met in Portland who was actually an MD uh, who um, – was interested he was part Cherokee and interested in herbs and he was working with chronic fatigue patients uh, worked with him for a few years and uh, we sort of traded mutually um, I taught him more about herbs he taught me more about the practicalities of chronic disease and uh, his speciality was uh, chronic fatigue and um, at that time in, in the 90s, chronic fatigue was a, was a real, it's still not a, a fun area to work in, but it was, it was a very tricky area to work in. Um, what it taught me was, was how to work with the immune system. And later I, I, I moved um, away from Eugene and um, I moved down to Ashland and started working with Donnie Yance and cancer patients in his clinic probably 15 years ago um, and found that my – two things, the, the knowledge I had of working with the immune system plus my sort of scientific background um, meant that uh, I, could, I could actually pause a lot of – a lot of herbal um, care into the oncology setting, which is a setting that does actually uh, possibly quite rightly scare off less, less trained herbalists or herbalists who haven't been um, around that work so much. And the, the key thing was that when you have cancer, when you have a diagnosis of cancer, you really, um, you're really serious about your care. So you get serious. So it isn't a question of check my herbs, man. It's, hey, I don't want to die. And can herbs help me or not? And those are, then it becomes a much more serious issue and you can work much more intensively with people who really uh, need help. And um, yeah, that's really how I got into it. And, and because it's such a challenging area, over time I just began to uh, do nothing but that. Um, and to this day, it's pretty much 95% uh, of the work that I do is with cancer patients. Okay. 
And would you describe your work as integrative medicine? Mm, that's a that's a good question. I I actually have a lot of difficulties with the um, the I word, the integrative word. Um, I I think to some extent herbalists in in the U.S. have always been a bit of a, um, a, a kind of underclass since since the beginning of the previous century. Um, and uh, have led a somewhat Cinderella existence. And now we're seeing a lot of uh, mainstream medical people uh, adopt or hijack um, a limited number of um, botanicals um, under the flag of being integrative. But if you look at all these integrative courses, for doctors, including out of the U of AZ and so on, the Andy Weil type of fellowship, all these integrative um, uh, courses are staffed by MDs, uh, sometimes PhDs, sometimes PharmDs, and there's never a herbalist in sight. So my my position on integrative is kind of like um, uh, some of you, some folks may be familiar um, with Ken Wilber, uh, the, the kind of integrative alternative philosopher guy out of uh, Boulder, Colorado for, for a long time. Um, Ken Wilber wrote something very uh, profound about uh, integrative work, which he was really the philosopher of, of the integral. And he used to say, when a knowledge discipline has something to say about itself, uh, listen to it. And when a knowledge discipline starts talking about other disciplines, don't listen to it. And I think that's what we're dealing with with integrative medicine. We're dealing with a lot of people who know nothing about herbs um, who are claiming to um, claiming to be uh, integrate herbal medicine into the into their practice. and it's actually not true. Um, so, it's it's a it's a I don't regard myself as integrative. I kind of I I believe that herbalists should be somewhat politically rather more like the the sixties Black Panthers who you know we you don't get to integrate with us. Um, we choose who we want to integrate with, if at all and when. And uh, personally, I don't see much point in integrating with ninety nine percent of standard practice medicine. So today we're going to talk about herbs for cancer. Can you tell us in your experience what causes cancer? <laughs> well, I don't think I'd be driving an old Subaru if, um, if I could tell you that exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a, it's a, that's a big question. Um, I think from one of the th things I try and uh, talk to people about because a lot of people come to me when they're fairly uh, newly diagnosed with cancer and there's a huge fear and not a very, um, you know, a lot of misunderstanding of, of what cancer is. And the first thing I think over time that I've learned now to talk to people about is, is that cancer is not a thing at all. Uh, it's not a thing that has a cause. Um, uh, cancer is not even a noun. So the misunderstandings of cancer are kind of embedded in our language. We, we talk about, you know, oh, I got a, I got a, I've got a tumor, so I've got to cut it out and 
then it will be gone. And then I will do radiation to make sure it's gone and possibly chemo as well. And these kind of ideas um, come from seeing cancer as an entity. Um, and in fact, cancer is really, um, I think it should be a verb. So we should say, not that I have cancer, um, or that uh, we should say, I am cancering. Um, and, and if you look at it as a verb, you immediately see it as a process um, and one which actually we are all doing. Even the people who don't have tumors are cancering. So we, everybody is making cancer cells. In other words, DNA, um, a lot of the time DNA is breaking. Uh, it's getting slightly messed up. It's very fragile and delicate. And sometimes these um, problems uh, don't get repaired properly. We do have tremendous repair mechanisms at a cellular level. Um, and this is something that, that an awful lot of people all of the time are, are going through. And it's really a series of almost uh, random accidents that lead to, in many cases, um, these, the, the, uh, these kind of perturbances or disturbances of, of normal cancering, which doesn't manifest as a tumor, become tumor-like tumor and manifest as disease. And one of the, the next, so I try and explain to people that, you know, cancer is a complex process. Um, and it's not something that you can just snap your fingers either with a scalpel or with x-rays or chemo or herbs for that matter and just be cured. Because once you, once you have demonstrated that tendency to grow a tumor, to be cancering, um, it becomes a, a long-term battle of very much like chronic disease, any chronic disease like arthritis, for example, to, to manage the situation and stay in control of it. It's certainly true, cancer, cancer can be. Uh, if cancer gets out of control, uh, it is far more um, uh, likely to cause serious problems than, say, arthritis, where we may perhaps end up in a wheelchair, but we're still here. Um, so Cancer, I, I think the best way of looking at it is that it's a complex, multifactorial process. Um, it, is, it is a series of perturbations of, of our normal uh, cellular life and activity. Um, and treating it becomes a long-term, chronic, ongoing process a lot of the time. Don't know if that's helpful, but that's sort of where I've gotten to in talking to patients, you know, because the, the important thing is when someone has a diagnosis, the first thing you have to, one has to do is really try and help them understand their situation um, in, in, in as most useful way as, as possible. And I think that's that's where my over the years that's that's the sort of take that I I present to patients, and hopefully it's helpful to anyone listening to this as well. Yeah, you know, um, I don't know if this is too complex for you to answer, <laughs> but I've always wondered why does cancer show up in one spot in one person and somewhere else in another person? It's just is it just random? 
that yeah. Gina, these are great. These are great questions. Um, I I wish I could give you the answers. Um, the um, we do have. Um, you know, there are some cancers that definitely uh, tend more towards environmental causes. Um, you know, there's some very clearly established associations, you know, between, you know, the the world, the best known is between, you know, smoking and lung cancer, for example. But, you know, hairdressers or printers and bladder cancer, any, anyone working with volatile solvents, um, these tend to get concentrated in the urinary tract. Uh, where they where they cause uh, bladder cancer, um, so some of some of the connections are are, um, are somewhat predictable. Um, you know, in in the current environment, re reproductive cancers, uh, particularly the hormonal ones in men and women, are uh, have been slowly on the increase, and that um, although it's it's very hard to come up with definitive evidence that is that is very likely due to the rise in um, uh, xenoestrogenic compounds hormone disruptors and so on and so on but but having said that then there are you know unknown genetic factors and I my, my own feeling is this is essentially just a, a random crapshoot factor in where things tend to happen the other the only other point is that the where in the body, is, is an old view of, of cancer because cancers used to be, uh, 50 years ago, cancers were always classified firstly in terms of, of where did you get it? So, so the assumption is, for example, that a breast cancer and a colon cancer are two very different entities. And of course, up to a point they are. But these days we look under the hood and we can find that there are um, inflammatory breast cancers, which is what colon cancer is, is best known as an inflammatory, uh, the, the, the kind of quintessential inflammatory cancer. It, it produces inflammation, thrives on inflammation, and you can actually, by breaking inflammation, you can actually intervene very effectively in colon cancer. Well, we have breast cancers that are inflammatory, and we have colon cancers that have uh, estrogen receptors. And now that we're looking under the hood, um, there's a much more, um, there's a cellular level that we, we identify cancers by. And the reason for explaining that to you is, is really, um, it's fantastically important for herbs. And, and, and the reason for that is is that a lot of the, the recent work in the last 10, 20 years, experimental natural products chemistry research into how herbs affect cellular systems and uh, particularly cancer systems, um, it's all written in the same language. So uh, as, as the language of researching the underlying basis of cancer. So all of a sudden, we can map very easily, we can map herbs onto the mechanics of cancer in an effective way uh, that was absolutely unknown by traditional herbalism. Uh, and I think that's, that's really, it's partly what I call herbalism 3.0. Um, it's, it's very exciting. It's very important. And unfortunately, um, 
it doesn't have a huge and widespread understanding amongst herbalists because there's often a little bit of polarization against kind of getting too sciencey, uh, et cetera, et cetera, um, in, in herbal medicine, especially in the current period. Uh, but that's, that's just an impression from my, my kind of little old man bunker here. But um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, it's a pity that, that people um, inside herbal medicine are not um, – in general, are not well educated in molecular biology and so on, um, because that's become somewhat tainted, as opposed to the the sort of being, you know, a community herbalist, little bit of the sort of too cool for school approach. I I, I see a polarization there that I think is unfortunate. Yeah. Well, is there anything that we can do to prevent cancer from forming in the first place? I mean. Um, like, are there herbs we can take for that? Yes. I, I, I mean, I think um, there's a whole group of herbs, and, and most people will know a, 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 many of them because they're, they're spices and pot herbs from the kitchen. So you don't even have to be a herbalist to know what, what, what they are. You know, just really basic herbs like, like um, ginger, garlic, uh, turmeric, um, Rosemary, these kind of materials um, actually have what are called uh, chemopreventive. It's a kind of science word for um, agents that, um, molecules that actually uh, prevent the tendency for cancer to escape control. And they do that in a number of ways. Um, you know, turmeric is a, perhaps the best known example. Um, where, where it actually, small doses of turmeric um, interact with, I call it, um, I have a word for it, I call it molecular multitasking. Um, so unlike drugs, you know, a drug tends to um, affect one or two very specific targets. Um, the one that's picked out as being beneficial is called the good effect, and then the, the other ones are called the adverse effects. Well, something like turmeric will affect two to 300, if not more, targets in different pathways um, very gently and pushing those pathways in a, if you like, um, an anti-cancer direction. Um, so uh, particularly using, using those kind of uh, herbal materials coupled with um, avoidance of pro-cancer um, materials in the diet, which are pretty common these days, uh, you know, trans fats and preservatives and colorings and all the, all, all the stuff that the um, industrially processed food and so on, avoiding the pro-cancer things, using these uh, chemopreventives, and then just basic natural common sense, you know, clean air and clean water and lots of exercise and sleep. But uh, it, it's pretty general, um, prevention, prevention and treatment, I used to think were very separate, but I do think they're much more related these days. And the key is the dose of the compounds that you take. So, you know, it's like the Mediterranean diet. 
uh, s small doses of, you know, good fats and garlic and so on lead to less inflammation, less heart disease, uh, less stroke, uh, less cancer. Um, and, uh, but if you were diagnosed with any of those, whether you lived in the Mediterranean or not, you wouldn't just eat more salad dressing. You know, you'd have to start increasing the dose. So dose of botanicals is the link between prevention and treatment. Okay, so I know that your upcoming book is all about cannabis, but are there other herbs we can take to cure cancer? Uh-oh, you used the you used the cure. <laughs> you used the C word now. Uh, yeah, so I know. The I word to the C word. Um, so let me just pick up on that. The, the, again, I think if you see, you know, let's say you have a tumor – um, maybe it's a, a breast lump that was biopsied and found to be um, um, a carcinoma, and you have it cut out. Um, some some women who are diagnosed caught at an early stage do that, and then they don't do any other treatment. So, would you call them cured? Well, it is possible that you could use that, but I, again, I would say it's a slightly misleading. Um, word and that what we should be talking about is control of the cancering because um, the fact is that if, if a tumor has grown there and you simply cut it out, um, why should it not grow again? What are you, what are you going to do that's going to change? Um, so, so cure and management are, are two slightly different terms. It's certainly, it, it is the case that some cancers can be effectively treated so that there is no recurrence. And you, you could argue the semantics and say that equals cure. But cure is not a useful um, term. And again, with newly diagnosed folk, I often try and explain this because everyone's looking for a cure. So that leads you to herbs. Um, people are always, people seem to persist in a belief that mainstream medicine has missed some magical herbal treatment for cancer. And it's either a conspiracy theory or just that they're stupid or whatever it happens to be. And it, it is extraordinary how many folk come to me who've been dealing with cancer actually asking me, have I heard of such and such an herb? And it's usually being promoted on the internet. It's often, you know, Amazonian, South American, something from, you know, the Peruvian jungle used by shamanistic healers for eons, etc., etc. And it's completely um, pretty much unheard of outside of ethnobotany. Um, and there's maybe one or two studies in a test tube that show that it, uh, this herb has killed cancer cells in a test tube of one kind or another. Um, and uh, I think that, that, uh, that model or that problem uh, relates to the search for uh, herbs that cure or kill cancer cells. Um, generally speaking, you know, the great um, Southwestern herbalist, Michael Moore, um, the late Michael Moore, uh, used to say, one of the things I, I think that he was so right about, um, he used to tell his students to um, 
try and use herbs for what they were appropriate for. In other words, you, you got to really try and understand the capacities of a herb. What it what, what is it best at doing, and not try and push it into doing something that is not, as it were, in its remit. It's not part of its repertoire. Even if you put it into a cancer situation, um, is that the best thing? Is that herb the best thing? Uh, if you're asking a herb that ki can kill cancer cells, is that what we should be doing with this cancer patient? So there are a bunch of herbs that we know kill cancer cells in experimental situations, including cannabis. Does that mean that is the best? You know, are, are we looking for green chemo here? If you want to kill cancer cells, what's wrong with chemo or radiation? To be to be perfectly honest, um, the doses of of herbs that you may have to take um, to achieve um, concentrations at a tumor inside the body that might influence that tumor are so massive. They are so massive that the normal ways of the normal ways of preparing and administering herbal medicines are, are very unlikely to have much impact. Um, let me give you an example. I mean, even with cannabis, one of the few human clinical um, tests of cannabis um, in a, uh, a tumor that is a very, very scary tumor called um, GBM for short, glioblastoma multiform, it's the most aggressive kind of brain cancer. Um, can very often lead to death within um, a, a relatively short period of time, despite uh, repeated surgeries and radiations. Um, there is no very simple uh, known cure for GBM. Uh, the people who've survived GBM, it, it's been partly luck, uh, unknown genetics and uh, multiple treatment modalities that have pulled people through. Um, cannabis is an exciting herb that um, can treat GBM. Uh, but the only data we actually have that proves this is, is um, a chap called Guzman, in, uh, Dr. Guzman in Italy, took uh, uh, half a dozen patients who had failed to recover um, failed to maintain remission after three or four treatments uh, and had maxed out on surgery, radiation, everything else. And he in, put can he gave these patients THC, pure THC, tetrahydrocannabinol, the psychoactive agent from cannabis. Um, but here's the thing. He, he drilled holes in their skulls and put it right into the tumors. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, I, I can see not a lot of herbalists are going to start doing that. Um, trepanning went out uh, many hundreds of years ago, drilling people's skulls. Um, so, you know, it, it, that, although the treatment led to remission um, far beyond any life expectancy, these folk, these these guys were all on a you know don't buy green bananas uh, kind of uh, prognosis, two three months to live. 
Um, and um, several of them live for nine months and a year. Now, you may say, well, that's nothing, but actually compared to a few weeks, a year is, uh, is, is pretty dramatic. And who knows if they've been treated with this, uh, with cannabis in the first place, maybe, maybe things would have been different. So you can see the, 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 um, the question of herbs and cure is, is, is a very tricky one. Um, uh, even with, with a herb like cannabis that, and a cancer like GBM that we have no really effective way of treating, um, it's kind of a, it's very much unknown territory. And it, it, it's distressing to me to see how much um, certainty uh, there is on the interwebs, you know, with people saying, well, cannabis kills cancer cells. Well, yep, it does. You know, so does, um, so does rye whiskey. So does, um, so does a Smith and Wesson 45, you know, anything <laughs> you can kill cancer cells in a number of ways. Does that mean it's an effective agent that we should be using for that job? Mm, not always. I, I very, I personally am familiar with many herbs that are cancer killing and I don't use them very much. I'm much, most of the time I am doing other stuff for cancer patients with herbs. Yeah, that actually leads to my next question, which is what misinformation have you come across in your research? I like your questions, Gina. <laughs> these, are, these are great. Um, so a few years ago, um, I, I actually wrote a paper on called uh, The Mainstream Manufacture of Misinformation <clears throat> about herbal medicine. It had come out of uh, some interactions, herb-drug interactions research I was doing. And um, it's, a, it's a funny story. I, I, I kept coming across this reported interaction between ginseng and uh, monoamine oxidase inhibitors. Um, and it didn't really make a lot of sense because I couldn't find anyone, any reports of people taking um, ginseng, i.e. Panax ginseng, with a with um, salazine or one of the general uh, monoamine oxidase inhibit inhibitors, which are somewhat out of fashion anyway these days as drugs, MAO inhibitors, um, used to be used a lot more for anti-depression and also um, for blood pressure and so on. But um, this kept cropping up, and I found an editorial in a pharmaceutical mag that was referred to repeatedly um, and it was just the ramblings of this editor saying that he'd found a patient and she'd taken this pro product and she had this terrible interaction and went manic and and I they they gave the name of the product and it was made by a company called Natural at the time so I called Natural and said um this product you used to make, I don't think they make it anymore. Um, can you tell me what was in it? And the, the tech support at Natural said, no, no, I can't, I can't, but I'll tell you what, we've got copies of the labels, and the labels had the ingredients, so I'll send you a, an image of the label, and they sent me the image, and lo and behold, there was no ginseng in the material. 
Um, and this was really not uncommon. In other words, people in the mainstream literature are claiming interactions take place that are completely fictional. I mean, this is um, this is absolutely absurd. But because it's mainstream literature, you can write a letter to a journal that's full of nonsense. But the letter then goes down into Medline and becomes part of the indexed literature. Uh, so misinformation is is uh, is really rife uh, in the mainstream. And the other thing is is that the the other kind of misinformation that is very current is is the popular misinformation, which is the kind of uh, internet. You know what I think the herbalist Paul Bergner calls. Um, Herban, herban myths, um, uh, you know, where, where, where basically stuff is just banded about and repeated and um, linked with conspiracy theories and, you know, big pharma has suppressed this amazing herbal fact, et cetera, et cetera. So we're beset from two extremes by misinformation. And these days, I think, um, regrettably, you know, again, I sound like a grumpy old man, but... Um, uh, the, 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 one of the one of the properties of social media uh, in 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 the last uh, five years plus r- really seems to have been that pretty much anyone can write anything anywhere about whatever they feel like, and it just gets passed around and repeated and becomes some kind of um, strange factoid. Uh, with no actual basis in reality at all. So, yes, there's a huge amount of misinformation. Uh, unfortunately, lay folk don't understand herbal medicine um, because because of its suppression here in the states. So, there's not a really good uh, knowledge of the fact. I mean, people know herbs aren't drugs, but a lot of lay people believe have a drug model of how they think herbs work. You see what I'm saying? Definitely, yeah. You know, what can I take instead of an antidepressant? What can I take instead of a, an aspirin or an NSAID? You know, what, what herb is good for this or that? And the answer is that's not how herbal medicine works, you know? Yeah, that's actually why I started this podcast in the first place was because I'm looking online and there's so much information contradicting each other. And I'm trying to figure out what's the truth. Yeah. So I figured I'd go to the experts to find out. Well, one of, one of my little slogans, again, I, I, I often try and distill a lot of this into, into fairly concise slogan-like form. But one, one, of my, one of my favorites is that herbs don't work, which is, of course, what, what the right-wing docs on mainstream, the anti-herb people say, well, herbs don't work. And I, I'm all for it. I say, exactly. you know, a lot of herbalists will get very put out and say, well, of course they work. You know, you just don't know how to study them and nobody's experimenting on herbs anyway because of big pharma and blah, blah, blah. And my take is, no, you're right, herbs don't work. And the, the, the reasoning for that is that, is that herbs aren't drugs. Um, you know, you don't say how to scrambled eggs work. <laughs> Um, you, you don't have to do a clinical trial to know that it's a bad idea for someone with who's obese, sedentary, and hypercholesterolemic. It's a bad idea for that person to eat scrambled egg omelets every day. 
Whereas, you know, someone who's prepping for an extreme marathon or something, it's, it's a great idea to have lots of good protein and fat. Um, in other words, the body works on herbs. Herbs don't work on the body. And these, these are incredibly subtle differences, which I think, you know, unfortunately are just deeply lost, have been lost to our sort of knowledge of, of how things work in general. So um, in your practice, do you work with herbs in combination with other things like chemo, radiation, and surgery, or do you think that herbs should just be used on their own? Um, I think I'm probably Mr. I, I am Mr. Interactions. Uh, in, in, I mean, I, I, I wrote all the herbal monographs in a big textbook on herb-drug interactions. Um, I think that herbs work, can work incredibly well to um, complement and support necessary drug treatments. Um, and I do that all the time. Um, it, it isn't simply a question of uh, avoiding bad interactions. The, the, the whole understated side of herb-drug interactions is that there are literally um, tens of dozens of cases that we know of where herbs combined with drugs can reduce the drug side effects and um, actually increase the efficiency of the, the, the drug's action. Um, it isn't just uh, an anti-side effect thing either. Uh, it really is possible to um, enhance in a, in a 1 plus 1 equals 3 way uh, when you can add certain herbs to certain chemotherapies or and such like or radiation for that matter there are certain herbs that can act as radio sensitizers is we, we call them which which means that you can take a herb that will uh, when you're going through radiation that will improve the capacity of radiation to kill cancer cells and that's a pretty amazing that's a pretty amazing thing so so yes i do that all the time that that's it's it's really kind of mostly what i do actually is work with herbs in relation to to mainstream treatments and then you know after after people have had their cancer treatment assuming they're in remission yes of course you use herbs on their own um but but it's in that it's in the kind of cauldron as it were of uh, the intense, unpleasant interventions that often have to be made to deal with serious cancer diagnoses um, that you can actually, it's a crazy use for herbs. I mean, if, if I'd have thought about it 30 years ago, um, I, I, I never would have thought that it was something I'd be doing, but it's essentially, um, I call it, it's like bioremediation. I mean, you're essentially trying to, you're walking into one of the most toxic kind of spaces, as it were, in medicine, you know, chemotherapy, radiation, et cetera, et cetera. And you're saying herbs will help. So it's kind of like putting a, a biohazmat suit on and trying to, um, you know, act in that uh, theater or that scenario. Um, and I do understand why people think it's a slightly weird uh, 
activity. I mean, there's not a lot of people doing this work. So what are some examples of herbs you could take with chemo? Well, the majority of chemotherapies, the cytotoxic chemotherapies, are all um, suppressed bone marrow. So, And I'm sure most people who know about herbs will uh, be familiar with this kind of approach. So one of the first things you can do is, is actually um, try and protect and nourish the bone marrow um, and um, <clears throat> protect uh, the activity of forming new blood cells, uh, white cells in particular, but also red cells. Most toxic chemotherapies directly affect rapidly dividing cells. So in this case, you know, the classic examples are astragalus and most of the uh, medicinal mushrooms which contain, you know, long-chain poly, polysaccharides, the, the beta-1,3 glucans and so on, these, these herbs um, at a deep level can encourage and protect the bone marrow against some of the ravages of um, cytotoxic chemo. Similarly, um, uh, helping... Uh, other rapidly dividing cells that are attacked by chemotherapy are, are in the gut, in the mouth, mouth sores we often have, but you can have sores right the way down your GI tract. You can have terrible diarrhea. Classic, very simple herbs that um, uh, protect um, demulcent herbs that uh, protect the gut, licorice, um, plantain, um, e even at the level of making simple herb teas, um, with marshmallow and so on, you can do an awful lot without spending money on fancy extracts using very simple anti-inflammatories and demulcents. Um, I mean, that's just, th those are some of the most obvious examples. Um, similarly with radiation, you know, it's not just a question of protecting against burns, but it's also a, a question of, of um, trying to protect the healthy cells against the scatter effects of radiation, which can be um, uh, are very hard to control, even though they 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 mask the radiation a lot. So you need to be able to protect um, sensitive tissues near the radiation um, against the effects of radiation, which causes inflammation and fibrosis. And a lot of her that will depend on the tissue. For example, you, you might use, if radiation was going near the heart or uh, in, in the lungs, you would, you would use uh, respiratory uh, demulcent herbs to protect, to protect the delicate lung tissue against essentially what is, you know, like a burning radiation effect. Um, other areas, it might be different, you know, um, pelvic radiation, uh, you'd protect the delicate cells in the bladder with urinary demulcents, yeah, anything from, you know, the classic herbs such as corn silk or whatever would apply to the particular tissue that was being irradiated. So you can devise protective formulae that actually depend to some extent on the target area of the radiation. I mean, I've done this even with such um, science fiction type treatments as protein, proton, proton beam treatment for uh, melanoma in the eye, where the charged particles uh, have much less scatter and are used to try and um, 
eliminate a melanoma in the eye without damaging the optic nerve. So there, for example, you'd use neuroprotectants, um, uh, particularly um, to protect the retinal layer and the optic nerve. So there's, there's really a lot of different, many, many different examples. I could really talk about it all day. And that's where this week's episode leaves off. Be sure to check back on Monday to hear the rest of the interview where we dig into cannabis specifically. In the meantime, if you'd like to find out more about Jonathan or download the free chapter of his upcoming book, Cannabis and Cancer, please visit everydayherbals.com episode eight. I'll see you next week.